While the gist is dedicated to explicit content, today we have left the profane fields to lay fallow. It's Thursday, June 30th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. President Biden exited a NATO summit in Madrid today and correctly hailed the progress the alliance has made. They welcomed in Finland and Sweden. Uh, Biden referred to the last one as Switzerland, but he caught himself and made a joke. Want to hear a real joke? That would be Turkey's critique of Sweden and Finland joining NATO. Turkey? It's a little like Pete Best trying to veto Ringo. No, it's like Ralph Malf making his case for rejecting Fonzie. No, it's like mold explaining to the Petri dish. Just stick with me, mold. Ignore this weird resulting penicillin. My references date back to 1961, 1974, and 1928. I am cutting edge. Biden welcomed the two newest members in what was his speech's best line, at least as written. Putin thought he could break the transatlantic alliance. He tried to weaken us. He expected our resolve to fracture. But he's getting exactly what he did not want. He wanted the Findalization of NATO. He got the NATOization of Finland. And that's true, slight stumble aside, but these days it's hard to set aside the stumbles and the outright falsehoods. He asserted this when asked by a reporter about the economy. We have the strongest economy in the world. Our inflation rates are lower than other nations in the world. Later adding, but inflation is higher in almost every other country. In fact, U.S. inflation at 8.6 is higher than 12 other countries in the G20 including China, which has an inflation rate of 2.1. That's what they report. They have some control over that. Saudi Arabia is 2.2. Japan, an honest inflation rate, 2.5. Japan could always use a little higher inflation. But France, Germany, Mexico, Canada, and the EU, they're all below the United States' very high inflation rate. I don't know how many Pinocchios this would rate if Trump had said it. Maybe it would be, well, that was the eighth least inaccurate thing he said that day. But Such statements should be called what they are, which is wrong. Substantively, it doesn't matter how Biden executes his speeches as much as how he executes his policies. And this list of armaments going toward Ukraine was accurate and impressive. Nearly 140,000 anti-tank systems, more than 600 tanks, nearly 500 artillery systems, more than 600,000 rounds of artillery ammunition as well as advanced multiple launch rocket systems, anti-ship systems, and air defense systems. The goal of that list isn't domestic approval numbers. Americans credit Biden for leadership in the war, but largely they don't care. For his part, Biden doesn't much care if they care. He is committed to arming the Ukrainians. On the world stage, he is delivering at home. His arsenal for counterattacks isn't so clear. On the show today, I spiel about another institution that Biden spoke of, the U.S. Supreme Court, a latest ruling and one to come. More bad news if you're a fan of the environment, checks and balances, and intellectual consistency. But first, well, I was was pleased to have played that list of weaponry so you could hear it because my next guest is depending on it to turn the tide for Ukraine. Most U.S. military experts that I read will note that the lost territory that Ukraine just gave to the Russians may never be gained back, but not my next guest, retired Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, who once commanded the U.S. Army in Europe. 
He knows a good army when he sees one, and when he looks at the force that Putin has deployed, he is deeply unimpressed. General Hodges joins me to offer what I thought was a surprising assessment, but even though the gist has a 4.5 star ratings on iTunes, he does have a three star rating on his uniform. Ben Hodges up next. Joining me once again is retired Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, who is now newly Senior Advisor for Human Rights First. He is, uh, well, he has so many roles in joint and army staff positions, including Commanding General of the United States Army in Europe, well positioned to talk about how this war is going. Thanks for joining me again, General. Thank you very much for the privilege. I can't believe you let me back on. <laughs> yes, it's a, another tour of duty with the gist. So, the <laughs> last time we spoke, things were, you know, war is never good, but po- possibly looking optimistic for the Ukrainians. The Russians were not performing uh, up to their capacity or what was assumed to be their capacity. But now, as we speak at the end of June, am I right to glean from the reports I've read that things are more pessimistic in terms of the outlook for the Ukrainians? Uh, absolutely not. Uh, I am still uh, an optimist. I'm a realist, but still an optimist. And and, and I'll tell you why. Three reasons. Uh, first of all, the, the resilience and the will of the Ukrainian soldiers and Ukrainian people, that, that's the big difference maker. Uh, clearly, they are suffering casualties. Clearly, the Russians are able to keep shooting artillery. But the, the will and resilience of Ukrainians, and this is not cheerleading stuff. I mean, they're humans. But what I see is uh, is so impressive, and it's the kind of will that's required when you are outnumbered or you're at disadvantages um, that it, it makes a difference. The second reason is that um, all of the stuff that the United States, the UK, Germany, Poland, France, et cetera, that have been that, that we're delivering is finally starting to show up in some quantity. And so over the next three or four weeks, you're going to see, I think, a significant swing when the weight of all of this uh, Western artillery and rockets begins to be felt on the Russians. Uh, you're, you're going, we're, they're going to physically feel it. We're going to see it. And then the third reason that I remain an optimist is because the Russians, they have nothing else. I mean, mm-hmm. they can't escalate other than to nuclear weapons, which I think is almost zero chance. So all that they can do right now is to keep firing artillery. Um, they they have very, very significant manpower problems. I think, honestly, they're on their last legs. And so I believe it's very possible if all of us stick together and deliver what we said we're going to deliver, the Russians are going to crack. And by the end of this year, we're going to be we're going to be talking about Ukrainians pushing the Russians all the way back to the 23 February line. Interesting. So the Ukrainians are experiencing 200 deaths a day, KIA, and that is that has been confirmed by leadership. This is not just based on estimates. At that rate, how much longer can they go? Well, first of all, that is a they are suffering a lot of casualties. There's no doubt. But if you can't assume that for the next six months, it's going to continue at that pace. If what I said earlier is accurate. Mm-hmm. That if we're going to start feeling the weight of all of this new artillery and rocket capability in the next three or four weeks, 
they are specifically going to be destroying and disrupting the Russian artillery and rockets that are causing all the problems. Okay, so so that number in and of itself, you know, we're we're sound pretty cold right now. We're talking, but we're talking math because the Russians have chosen a war of attrition. All right. Um, secondly, you know, those numbers when somebody says two hundred dead a day, I mean that that doesn't. I mean, think about that. Exactly 200 dead a day. I've also heard 100 dead a day. There's no doubt they are suffering casualties. There's no denying that. The Russians are suffering more casualties. The Ukrainians have millions of men and women, military age, still in the country. Millions. Nobody wants to join the Russian army right now. And the Russians are unwilling to do a mobilization because then they would have to explain to their population why this whole thing has been such a disaster for them. So if we're talking... Purely strategically cold-hearted attrition, the Ru- the Russians are in a worse place manpower-wise than are the Ukrainians. Okay, let's talk about war of attrition in terms of arms. I want to get to the howitzers in a second, but just in terms of ammunition, Vadim Sibitsky, who's the deputy head of Ukraine's military intelligence, was estimating they use 5,000 to 6,000 rounds a day. Estimates that I've seen said they're about out of the Soviet era uh, ammunition. They're they're done with it. They're entirely reliant on the West. Uh, which side will run out of ammunition first? Mm-hmm. Well, if if the West does not provide anything, then clearly the Ukrainians will will run out of ammunition. Right. But fortunately, this war of attrition is not a one for one. Whereas you know, one Russian artillery piece, one Russian artillery battery or rocket launcher, we have to match it one for one because what we're talking about. Uh, the the famous HIMARS, for example, this rocket launcher, you know, these kinds of weapon systems, it's we're comparing apples and oranges uh, in terms of capability, lethality, effectiveness. So we don't have to have the same amount of uh, artillery ammunition or rockets as the Russians are employing because of the way that the Russians employ it. Now, look, I you, you're on to it. I mean, it is a serious problem that if we don't deliver, and that's the big fat caveat on my assessment, is that uh, we, have, we, the West, have to deliver what we said we're going to deliver. But when you talk about um, the capabilities that are being provided, albeit two months late, um, I personally avoid getting into X thousand versus X thousand. Mm-hmm. I, I, I want to talk about effects. And you might achieve the same effect with one Heimer's rocket that you might get from a hundred Russian conventional artillery rounds. Well, the Russian way of war is to grind it out. And as of a, f- a month ago, they absolutely had an advantage in the range of their artillery. It wasn't as sophisticated, but they could fire whatever whatever it was. I think it's 20 miles, right? And in response, the Ukrainians can only fire back 16 to 18 miles. Guess who always wins that fight? It's, of course, the ones with the uh, longer range. Now, the French Caesar howitzers coming in, the HIMARS rocket systems coming in. There will be questions about training and maintaining those systems. But right now, in terms of range, which you could tell me, I think it's ultimately important, but you tell me how important it is. Should the flow of weaponry from the West continue? Are the sides basically evenly matched? Um, I'm reluctant to say that because I would be guessing. Um, the, the Ukrainians have done an exceptionally good job of protecting information about themselves. And so anybody that talks about what Ukrainians have, they're going on hearsay or they shouldn't be talking about it. 
So the Ukrainians, to their credit, so I don't know what the status is of their organic artillery and rocket launchers. How many? How many rounds? That's the kind of information they would never want the Russians to know for obvious reasons. Um, I do have a good sense of what the the West has delivered to the Ukrainians. Uh, there are hundreds of thousands of rounds of artillery and rocket ammunition being delivered. Our stuff. I mean, our stuff. What I do believe. And, and I would not say this in public unless I believed it, that what we're going to see over the next three or four weeks is a significant shift in the capabilities of Ukrainian artillery and rockets versus Russian Ukrainian artillery and rockets. And, and the Russians are going to start feeling it. Mm-hmm. And they're, you know, they, they are doing now. You, you're exactly right. They're doing now what they've always known how to do. They are an artillery army. And so uh, they've defaulted to that because nothing else works. And so they just and because they don't have any concerns about shooting into towns and villages, they're just pounding away, grind, grind, grind. And the the biggest flaw in my analysis, of course, which has others, is that I don't know how much ammunition they have. I'm assuming it's endless. I do believe that they will run out of uh, howitzers and rockets and units and know how to use them once they start getting hammered by the Ukrainian artillery and rockets. Mm-hmm. The eastern city of Severodonetsk has, by accounts, fallen. That was a holdout. This allows Russia to gain that city and a foothold. Do you think with the uh, new influx of artillery we've been talking about, those lines stay where they are? Or do you think that the Ukrainians have a chance to gain back territory and put the uh, push the Russians yeah, I back? think uh, what we should be anticipating is... Um, somewhere over the next couple of months that uh, Ukraine will do, the Ukrainian troops will do what their grandfathers did in the Second World War, that they are conserving, they're preparing for a counterstrike when the time is right, when the place is right. So it's not going to be like a tug of war where you just push back and forth on the same place. They're going to be looking for opportunities to bypass, to encircle um, these uh, Russian forces, to get behind them. And this is what I mean is because so much of war is psychological and logistics as the logistics gets better. And because Ukrainians have the superior will in my assessment, when this thing cracks, then you're going to see Russian units are going to fall apart. I mean, this is what has happened throughout the history of warfare. Uh, The key will be, are the Ukrainians, do they have the, uh, the nerve to take risk in places to marshal, to preserve capability that could launch a counterattack. This this was normal stuff in the Second World War on the Eastern Front. You would have huge uh, salients would develop, you know, lines would go back and forth. But both sides, the German Wehrmacht and the Red Army, were looking for opportunity. They would save forces to launch a counterstrike. The Russian army today is nothing like their grandfathers, that's for sure. Uh, and, and so I think the Ukrainians are probably working hard to create that opportunity. So, Severodonetsk, I mean, they made a decision. It would have been a painful decision, but it was the right decision to, to say, OK, you know, this, this war is not about that city. This war is about preserving our capability so we can destroy their capability. So as we look back and try to assess Russian strategy retroactively, it seems, and this is what most observers say, they 
we're committed to what we're seeing now, the Russian way of war, artillery, uh, taking the Black Sea, establishing lines, but also they tried a decapitation strike into Kiev, which might have been wise or unwise, but it certainly failed. Uh, We don't know who ordered that. Maybe this was just a whim of Vladimir Putin. Maybe he thought it could work. Maybe he didn't. It seems like somewhat of an embarrassing failure. Taking that into account, okay, that certainly didn't work and there was a lot of attention paid to it. Uh, Give me an assessment of how the uh, chief of the general staff of the Russian military, General Gerasimov, is doing, do you think? Well, uh, that's such an interesting question. I, I was speaking to somebody the other day who would have pretty good insight on him. And they said they're still not sure, I mean, what his actual status is. That hmm. Gerasimov is, because um, uh, I asked, I said, how does he still have a job? How does Shorgu still have a job? I mean, given all the advantages they had, and here we are four months into the war, 85% of Russian land forces are committed to it. And they have not made too much progress uh, overall. I mean, if you think about it, the, all their advantages, 22% of, uh, of Ukraine is occupied, including Crimea, the parts they already had, um, at huge loss to themselves. In fact, I would say that uh, because of what the Russians have done uh, and how the alliance has reacted, our alliance is in the best, most advantageous strategic position it's been since the beginning of the Cold War, since since it was formed in 1949. Russia fully committed inside Ukraine, not winning. They they are pretty much isolated from much of the world. Their their economy is going to be suffering for years as as the various sanctions begin to take effect. Stand fast. We hadn't figured out how to make sure they don't get money from all their oil and gas they're still exporting. Um, Nobody respects their... uh, Air Force anymore, and their Navy is a is a non-factor. In the meanwhile, NATO has um, is is just announcing, as you heard, we're going from forty thousand to three hundred thousand troops on high readiness. Sweden and Finland will join NATO. That will all get sorted out with the Turks, and we're at a higher level of capability. And Germany is spending a hundred billion euro. So, I mean, it's it's a complete change of the strategic environment because of bad. Uh, miscalculations made by the Russians. And Gerasimov um, has got his fingerprints all over it. And, you know, the Gerasimov doctrine is uh, no longer this mystical thing that we used to talk about. It's now associated with murdered civilians in Bucha and missiles flying into apartment buildings and shopping malls. Yeah. And so what did your source say as far as how does he still have a job? Um, Because he represents... Um, at least some stability. I mean, he is a professional soldier. And and so there have been several changes, reliefs, sacks, as well as people getting killed. I don't know um, exactly who's who. I could. I don't have the face chart now of who's actually still in command. I think the Russians are trying to figure out, you know, what is the right command structure? Because obviously, as you pointed out, they thought they would just be able to drive in like they were going into Budapest or Prague back in the 50s and 60s. And it, did, it didn't turn out that way. Um, but I think the Kremlin looks at Gerasimov as, OK, at least this guy's stable. He's not a political threat. And he has the wasta inside the system to fix this, because there is a lot of belief that on the, of all the miscalculations that the Russians made, that the Kremlin, they didn't follow their doctrine. That I mean, a lot of experts say this was not the plan of the general staff. 
that what was happened was directed from the, you know, the president himself. And they didn't do what the Russians might would have normally done. And so you end up with this uh, big soup sandwich uh, that they've got uh, right now at massive cost. Mm. What about air superiority? Has that changed since the beginning of the war? This uh, missile strike seems to have been fired from aircraft uh, that hit the uh, shopping mall that you just talked about. Yes. Interestingly, uh, this is one of the two or three things where I think the Russians made a colossal failure, a mistake. They failed. They didn't even make air superiority a priority mm-hmm. they, because they can't. They they don't have the uh, the training, the the mindset, uh, the doctrine uh, to do all the things that are required to gain total air superiority. I mean, here we are, four months into it. Those uh, missiles that were just launched that you're talking about, they were fired from Russian aircraft flying in the airspace of Belarus. So they don't even come into. Ukraine, because they are so concerned about Ukrainian air defense. If the U.S. Air Force was doing this or the Royal Air Force or any of our NATO allies were doing this, of course, the first thing you do is you establish air superiority. They, they say freedom from attack so that you have freedom to attack. And um, that would have meant going after all of the air defense systems, the command and control, uh, the airfields from which aircraft fly, wipe that out. So that then you can fly around and drop bombs wherever you need to. But that requires a level of training and coordination that the Russians don't have. They, they have a lot of really nice aircraft, but that does not equal a great air force. Yeah. Last question. In the next couple of weeks, what are some data points that my audience should look for to see if your general optimism and prognostications are tracking? All right. Number one, it's got to be absolute stone cold crystal clear that the west remains unified and committed to supporting ukraine so we're getting good mood music coming out of el mao and the g7 uh the nato summit i think is going to come we're going to come out of that the secretary general stoltenberg saying the right things so that's that's what i'm going to be watching like a hawk over the next couple of weeks for any indication that france or germany or even the white house is kind of like huh you know, we need to find a peaceful outcome for this thing. Okay. If they, if the language shifts off of Ukraine's got to win, uh, we got to crush the Russians. I will get concerned because that's the big fat caveat on my uh, uh, analysis. Uh, the second thing, of course, is I'll be looking every week for uh, announcements of, okay, this new, another HIMARS showed up, another batch of rockets has arrived. Imp- positive information that the capabilities are still coming in. Those are the things that I'm going to be looking for. Ben Hodges is a retired lieutenant general. He was the commanding general of the United States Army in Europe. He is now senior advisor for the group Human Rights First. Thanks so much. Mike, thank you again for the privilege. And now the spiel, because reasons. It's one of those glib internet memes 
that purports to reveal but really obscures. I like knowing the reasons, even if I don't agree with them, helps me approach the argument. However, the U.S. Supreme Court is engaging in the ultimate because reasons jurisprudence. If the reasoning of the court was original intent, well, then goofy and strange as it is to will ourselves to a base of knowledge in the late 18th century, a hundred years before the development of germ theory, well, fine, at least that's a standard. And with Dobbs and New York Pistol, the Supreme Court said, okay, that is indeed our standard. The original meaning of the Second Amendment certainly was that a city can't tell a citizen not to own a weapon whose killing power was hundreds of years beyond the comprehension of the amendment's authors. I mean, the existence of Neptune was 50 years beyond their comprehension, but whatever, that's the standard. If it's original intent, I won't dissent. Only then comes today's ruling, West Virginia versus the EPA, the court concluded that no one ever said the Environmental Protection Agency could mm, protect the environment, where they get that idea. To get there, the court has a brand new theory. It once was, you read the text and you go by that. Mm. If it's original intent, the Federalist Society is content. And the even more restrictive school of thought than original intent is to be a textualist which says you don't even have to puzzle out what they originally meant to write. It's just what they wrote. But never mind original intent. Never mind textualism. When those five guys in ACB aren't into it, they don't use it. So the EPA was stripped of vital regulatory powers because the court invented something called the major questions doctrine. And Elena Kagan has major questions about the doctrine. Questions like, huh? Are you not the same folks who had been saying that original intent and I shan't dissent? Is that, was that you? Some other guys in robes? Spinal tap during the Stonehenge number? I don't know. Kagan wrote, the current court is textualist only when it so suits it. When the method would frustrate broader goals, special canons like the, quote, major questions doctrine magically appear as get-out-of-text-free cards. In other words, we can make our ruling the way we want to make our ruling because reasons. They have some justifications with Dobbs, and then they have opposite justifications with West Virginia versus Environmental Protection Agency, which, by the way, should be the state's motto. On a positive note, Ketanji Brown Jackson, a brilliant and vibrant legal mind, was sworn in as the first black woman on the court. On a negative note, her vote might not matter for, what, a decade? I don't know. Depends on the actuarial tables for Thomas and Alito and who is president when they die, which is a wacky system, but it is laid out in a document written 50 years before scientists knew that plants and animals contained cells. The court, this court, has now agreed to take on a case about the independent state legislature theory. Moore v. Harper. This is the theory that when it comes to federal elections and nothing else, state courts are not a check and balance for the state legislature. State legislatures are free to set election rules without regards to whatever their courts may say, because now we're back to textualism. The text of the Constitution says the state legislatures shall make all these rules and doesn't spell out the obvious thing, which is that legislatures can be ruled unconstitutional in every instance by state courts. It doesn't spell that out, but the Constitution does spell choose 
C-H-U-S-E, and no one ever says, sorry, textualism, that's not a word. So the part where it says, for instance, the House of Representatives shall choose their speaker and other officers, it means, well, there's no choose in English, therefore they can't do it. In fact, the closest thing we have is in the language Telugu, spoken Southern India. So unless you have a Southern Indian as the Speaker of the House of Representatives, I guess you're out of luck. You know what? I don't know if that's actually a correct or incorrect interpretation of the misspelling of choose. I kind of just made it up because reasons. And the only difference between me and the Supreme Court is a robe and a lifetime appointment. So, uh, Justice Jackson, congratulations. I look forward to reading your dissents in all the important cases for quite some time to come. That's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the GIST's assistant producer. Joel Patterson is the GIST's senior producer. Michelle Pesca is senior battalion observer and controller of the operations group at the Joint Readiness Training Center at Fort Polk. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash thegist. Oomperoo, jeeperoo, dooperoo, and thanks for listening.